Mighty God and everlasting Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for delivering to us the word of God. We thank you that you are all-powerful, that you are the God who created all things by the word that came into existence. And after you had finished all of these things, O Lord, you rested. You sanctified that day and hallowed it. And it has become for us the Lord's day. We ask, O God, that you would be with us as we study the section of Scripture and then look at the subsequent sections of Scripture that deal with the Lord's day, with the Sabbath day, that you would give us a clear understanding of what you require of us as we rest before you in Christ. We so pray that you would help us by the power of your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look to Genesis chapter 2 and read the first three verses. Follow along. Thus, the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Now, this is the conclusion of creation. This is finishing up creation. God blessed and sanctified the seventh day. Why? Because on it he ceased from his work. By the seventh day, God had completely finished all of the work of creation. And the seventh day reports the Sabbath or rest of God as he blessed everything that he created. And the repetition in this last section of the narrative stresses the culmination of creation and then the ceasing of that initial creation. And the word used here is the well-known word Rest, or Shabbat, or Sabbath. The word actually means cease, more than it necessarily does rest, but the connotations throughout the rest of Scripture bring to it an understanding of how the Hebrew mind would have understood rest. It's not rest like we think of it or understand it today. It is not a word that refers to remedying being exhausted after a tiring week of work. Rather, It describes the enjoyment of accomplishment, the celebration of completion. Now, the Sabbath, as a creation ordinance, is simply that. It is an ordinance that God has set down for all to observe. If it's revealed, if God reveals anything to us in Scripture, regardless of how it's revealed to us, whether we have to piece it together or whether it's simply stated, it should be observed. Jonathan Edwards said that if the Christian Sabbath be of divine institution, God has so divinely said and stated it, it is doubtless of great importance to religion that it be kept well. And therefore, that every Christian should be well acquainted with the command. Now, it's interesting that the way that Moses here in Genesis places it down, that it's not a command, it is a demonstration of what God did. God rested from all of his work. 
And as a result of that resting, it should be then mimicked by Adam, who holds the image of God, who is placed in the garden, and in looking at it from that light, God is to be obeyed simply by example alone. As Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God. So Adam should be an imitator of God. It is no small stimulus to any action, Calvin says, for a man to know that he is imitating his creator. When we imitate the creator, it should prompt us to think about how great that thing is that we are actually imitating something that God has done or something that God is. Now, what God has established for Adam in this particular section is a pattern. It's a pattern. He works six days and he rests one day. That's the pattern. What kind of day was this seventh day? Well, this day was a holy day. It was a sanctified day. It was a special day that was different than the other six days. He separated this day from secular and common use. He commonly did something in the other six days in which on the seventh day he didn't do. And he did something special. He blessed it and he sanctified it for man. God is not going to be more blessed or more sanctified than he is before he created everything to the day that he actually rested. It wasn't special for him. He blessed that day and he sanctified that day for us, for men. God would not have been robbed of anything if he had not made the seventh day or had made it or not made it or sanctified it or didn't sanctify it or didn't hallow it. He wouldn't have been robbed of anything. He would have still been God. He would still have been blessed. The Sabbath was made for Adam, not for God. By example, Adam in this way should work six days and he should rest one day. And who is this for? Is it simply for Adam or was it before Adam and everybody who had come from Adam? Was it only Adam himself that should rest on this day or all of his progeny? Well, it's all of his progeny. For Adam and everybody that follows Adam. Adam loved God perfectly with all of his mind, with all of his strength. And as a result of doing that, he was issued a sanctified day, a Sabbath day. And if it's issued to a man who is perfect, how much more then is it valuable for we who are fallen as a result of the fall? The very first day in Adam's creation that he enjoyed was the Sabbath day. Remember, Adam was made on the sixth day. And then God rested. The first day that Adam enjoyed was the Sabbath day. He entered into his rest. Now, that particular day is binding on all men for all time as a creation ordinance. All men for all time are to observe this day of rest and, as a result, glorify God the Creator who created all things. Now, I want you to think about this until I tell you to change your mind on this. I want you to think about this as a Jewish person 
whom Moses is writing to and is reminding them of what they should be thinking about concerning the Sabbath. He has certain ideas that they need to understand. Joe Israelite would think a certain way about the Sabbath. He would think a certain way as a result of being an imitator of what God did on that day and imitating him. Now, some people will say that because we don't find the Sabbath mentioned from this time that it's mentioned in Genesis 2 all the way until the time that the law is actually given, which is about 2,450 years, that nobody kept the Sabbath simply because it wasn't mentioned. Would silence, though, and I want you to think about this, this is how it works throughout all of the Old Testament, would silence necessarily dictate that there was no Sabbath practiced during that 2,450-year gap from the time that we read this to the time that we actually get the command to remember it? Well, no, not at all. From the time that Abel did the first sacrifice to the time that the flood came, which was 1,500 years roughly, there's no mention of any sacrifices. Does that mean that men didn't sacrifice anything? From the time that Moses died all the way until the time that we read it in Jeremiah, which would be eight centuries, there was no mention of circumcision. Does that mean that they didn't circumcise any of their children for eight centuries? There's no Sabbath mentioned in Joshua, in Judges, in Ruth, in First and Second Samuel, and even into First Kings. So does that mean that there was no Sabbath even after the law was given in Exodus 20 for all of that time? Silence never dictates that something is not so. As a matter of fact, Genesis points to the number seven as being very important. For example, in the process or end of days, Genesis 4.3, Abel and Cain came and sacrificed. A certain number of days, the process of days, and then the right day in which the sacrifice came. We find in chapter 7 and verse 2 that there are seven clean animals taken into the ark of each kind of clean animal. And in chapter 7 and verse 4, there are seven days. And in chapter 8, 10 to 12, there are seven more days, another week. A wedding festival in chapter 29 and verse 27 is said to last seven days. It was... Seven days as the length of time customary for domestic service with Jacob and Laban. It turned into seven years. In chapter 50 and verse 10, a funeral lasted, guess how long? Seven days. In Exodus chapter 12, the first institution of the Passover, the first time we see it, it was appointed to last, guess how long? Seven days. And in Exodus chapter 16 and verse 22, we find that the Israelites gathered on that day twice as much bread, two omers for each one, for the next day, which would be the Sabbath day. And that we find is the first account of of actually the Sabbath being enforced, even before they settled at Mount Sinai, and even before they had received 
the Ten Commandments. So we find throughout Genesis that there's a lot of these sevens. Well, why, why seven important? Why not eight? Why not 32? Why not four? Why is it seven? Well, it's set after the pattern of creation and the sanctification of the day that God made on the seventh day. Now, we see this first come to light in terms of what day that seventh day was when the Israelites were delivered out of Egypt and they gathered the manna. Interestingly enough, in Exodus 16, nobody ever told them to gather anything. They went, and the first day that the manna was given to them, they, they, get, they gathered a double portion. Because the next day, the day after they had been delivered out of Egypt, they were going into the wilderness, they were going into worship God, they were going into their rest. They were going into the Sabbath. And it's interesting that even at that point, the elders ran to Moses. And they said, what's going on? What are the people doing? Why are they gathering twice as much? And Moses inquired of the Lord. And then the Lord told them that the Sabbath day is the next day. And so he goes back and in verse 29, he gathers the people and the elders. And he, and he talks to them and he says, the Lord has given you a Sabbath. Past tense. A seventh of human life is regulated by that Sabbath day. And thus, just as Edwards has said, it's important that we understand exactly how this works. We are to imitate God as Adam would have imitated God, as all men must imitate God in the resting of that particular day. God's clarity of the Sabbath in the Old Testament and New Testament is what I want to look at in helping us understand what this pattern means and ultimately how it was fulfilled from Genesis 2 to the rest of the scriptures. In Exodus chapter 20, listen to what the commandment. Now, the commandment is, is given. The tablets of the law are given in Exodus 20. And in verse 8, it tells us or it expounds for us or demonstrates to us what Genesis chapter 2 means. I'm Joe Israelite. I'm hearing this. How would I understand it? It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days, ah, see, he's, he's talking about Genesis. In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. So the very command itself is set as a result of what Genesis 2 says, which is binding for all men, for all time. And it's explained more fully here. The commandment is moral. It's not a ceremonial command that the Israelites in and of themselves are supposed to follow. It is a moral command that is binding for all time, for all men. It's set in the middle of the moral code. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. All of these things are moral commands that can never be thrown away. As a matter of fact, this command for the Sabbath, it's not set 
as number one. It's not set as number ten, as if it could fall off the table in some way. It's set right in the middle of worship. You have the object, command number one, the means, command number two, the manner, command number three, and the time of worship, command number four. Set right in the midst of the moral law that is binding on all men for all time. The law of God is the perfect reflection of his nature and his will, and it binds all rational creatures, that's you and me, to perfect conformity to it in character and conduct. It's part of the Ten Commandments. And without this law, worship would be defaced, because we wouldn't know that there was a specific time on how long that time is to set aside for the worship of God. We don't want to mix together that which is sacred and that which is profane. God desires that the six days be used in common use, and on that seventh day, it's set aside and sanctified for us to him. There are a number of aspects of the law's character here that we should think about. It's remember the Sabbath day, which is positive. That's a positive aspect to it. And a negative aspect to it. Thou shalt not do these things on this day. So there's a positive and negative. It's a command to sanctify that day. And it begins, unlike any of of the other commands that are here, it begins with remember. Well, what are they remembering? It's to call to mind. It's to remember. It's to bring something to remembrance. What is it that God wants them to remember? It would be inaccurate for God to tell them to remember something that they hadn't known before. So they know something. There's something here that they're supposed to remember. And set inside the command is what they are supposed to remember. And that is the creation account. The pattern. Remember how God had created and how God had rested. It doesn't specify a day. It doesn't say Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It doesn't say that. All it says is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You're going to work six days, you're going to rest one day. That's a pattern. It doesn't tell us what day it is. If God had said Saturday is the day, then everybody for all time into eternity would be obliged to rest on that day, Saturday. But this is not what God says. He sets a pattern up here. So what day is it actually? Where did the Jews begin to know what day it was supposed to be? Well, as we see in Exodus 16, right before the law is given, exactly what they had done, they had come out of bondage, Egypt, which represents sin, and they had gone into the wilderness to worship God to rest. So, if you think of it this way, as a pattern, God had created the world in six days and rested. So, the Israelites had been in Egypt for 400 plus years and then came out and rested. That pattern is what God is telling them to remember. And so, as soon as they came out of Egypt, they gathered twice as much manna for the next day, which was going to be set as their first Sabbath, out of the weariness of the land of Egypt. The command points back to what God did and mimics him. 
It's not a ceremonial law. The ceremonial law hasn't even come into the point yet. It hasn't even come into the picture. There's no ceremonialness about it. This is the moral law. Glorify God. That's the primary intended goal of sanctification. It's the primary intended goal of you and I as believers. We're to glorify God in everything that God gives us. And Exodus says that we are to consecrate or sanctify or hallow this particular day. Meaning the actual day itself. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it. Keep it holy. Because ultimately, this is, as Exodus 31 tells us, a sign for the people of God. It's a sign. And because it was part of the moral code, and because it was so important, that if you broke it, it was punishable as a capital offense. At no time, anywhere in the Old Testament, is any ceremonial law punishable by a capital offense of death. Only the moral law is. Only the moral law that binds us forever to conformity in conduct. In Numbers chapter 15, they found this guy on the Sabbath day picking up sticks. They took him, brought him before Moses, stuck him in jail, inquired of the Lord. The Lord said, kill him, because he had desecrated the Sabbath day. It was a capital offense to break it. The Old Testament then takes this idea that Joe Israelite would understand. On this day, we do certain things. And on this day, we don't do other things. And Joe Israelite, as the head of his family, would teach, as the commandment so demonstrates, his son, his daughters, his servants, even his animals, not to work on that day, which would have been common, but to work in a different way, to celebrate the Sabbath day. For example, turn in your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 13. It's spoken of in Nehemiah 10 and in Nehemiah 13, but this gives us a, a, a good look at how important it was not to do those common things. There are a few scriptures throughout the Old Testament that show us these things, but Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 15 to 22, listen to what it says. In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in sheaves, and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also, and brought in fish and all kinds of goods, and sold them on the Sabbath day to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. So here you have business as usual going on, and Nehemiah sees that. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus? And did not God bring all this disaster on us and on the city as a result of your sin is what he's saying? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem as it began to be dark before the Sabbath that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened until after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do it again, 
I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this also and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. So everything that surrounded there, buying and selling, was forbidden on the Sabbath day. No buying, no selling, no business as usual. The Israelite would understand that this was so as a result of what the context of these passages have taught so far. Then Isaiah the prophet, in chapter 56, in verse 2, says, Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner, even the son of the foreigner, who has joined himself to the Lord, speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. So even as a result of them consecrating themselves to God, God says that even if they're a eunuch and they can't have children and they can't have this big house filled with children which they could teach and create godly seed with, God says, I'm going to even give them a better portion than that because I'm going to bless them as a result of them keeping my Sabbath. He does not want them to pollute the Sabbath day. What does it mean to pollute it? to defile it, to do something with that day that God did not intend. As a matter of fact, the prophet says in Isaiah 58, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and honor him not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. Now, what day was this? This was of the, de the holy day of the Lord. We find that phrase all through the New Testament. The day of the Lord. I was in the Spirit when? On the Lord's day. This is God's day. His Sabbath day. And it says we should delight ourselves in the Lord. What are our pleasures? What are they? We are allowed to have pleasures. But God says that those particular pleasures are to be delighted in the other six days. And on the one day that is his day, his Lord's day, we are to delight ourselves in him. It was a sign of rest. It was a sign of salvation. It was a sign of completion and for the Israelite. That's the way he was thinking about it. And thus... When we come to the psalm that we sing, it set forth a prophecy. We sang Psalm 118 twice, the first part and the second part, in this morning's worship. And this particular psalm demonstrates prophetically what Jesus will do and how he will consummate everything for the Sabbath day for us and show us how we are to keep that day. Listen to what Psalm 118 verses 22 to 24 says. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. 
Now, the stone is Jesus. The stone is Christ. Matthew 21, Mark 12, Luke 20, Ephesians 2, all say that the stone, the cornerstone, is Jesus Christ. So this idea of this day that we are to rejoice in, that the Lord has made, that's fulfilled in Jesus, is linked to salvation. Christ was refused and rejected. He was put to death. He died and he rose again, which made him the head or cornerstone. He is in end of himself, marvelous. And in his exaltation, that began with his resurrection. And that is what the psalmist is pointing to in that, that's the day that the Lord has made. Now, how do we know that? Sort of just speculation at this point of me just telling you that that's what the psalmist means. Well, it's very clear because the apostle Peter uses this very psalm, 118, in his first sermon, in Part, uh, partly in his first sermon and in his second, in Acts, where he talks about the day, which is the day that the Lord had made, that Jesus is the chief cornerstone, Acts 4.11. This is the day we rejoice in. This is the day that we exalt in. So the psalmist is speaking about those things. Resurrection into his ascension, his exaltation, his present intercession for us. Jesus is a type of, and demonstrates the typology of the rest that we have. The rest that Joe Israelite was demonstrating all through the Old Testament, but that's consummated and fulfilled in Jesus. He goes to heaven and gives us a great rest. We'll talk about that in a moment. The Israelites were to commemorate Genesis chapter 2. Remember the Sabbath day. Why? Because God created and he rested. So you, six days, do all the work that you have to do. Seventh day, sanctify it. That's how the Israelite would have been thinking. But in the new gospel era, in the time that the Messiah comes, fulfills all things, dies, is raised, goes to heaven, ascends, intercedes now, now there's a, what we'll call a gospel renovation, like when you renovate a house. It was a renewing a refreshing of the covenant made with Abraham and with Moses and the Israelites in Jesus. And this Sabbath, this rest now, is not only linked to the creation that God did and his rest, but now it's linked to salvation. It's always a type in the Old Testament to see some of those things, like when the Israelites left Egypt, which is... Uh, a picture of sin to come out and worship God, which is a picture of rest. That's still salvation, but now it's particularly salvation. In Jeremiah 4, the prophet talks about how the earth and the heavens are going to be reduced to formlessness and void, just like in the first chapter in Genesis. And as a result, with the gospel, it will be renewed. With Jesus, things are renewed. They're made refreshed. They're made full. They're made complete. And so, as a result of Jesus' work, we find that it's not just a resting as is coming out of Egypt in the Old Testament, but now it's particularly linked to the work of Jesus and particularly linked to 
his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his intercession. This is the day that the Lord has made for us. How do we know this? Does the Sabbath stop when Jesus comes, or does it continue? Well, even Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17-20, that he has come to fulfill the law, not to destroy it, that every jot and tittle of it will not pass away. How does he fulfill the law? Through his life, through his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his present intercession for us. What did Jesus do on the Sabbath day? Did Jesus not keep the Sabbath because he came? Does he make that void because now he has come and we're, quote, no longer under the law? You hear people say that all the time. We're no longer under the law, we're under grace. They completely misunderstand what that actually even is meaning when Paul says that. Jesus actually did good things on the Sabbath day and kept the Sabbath day. In Mark 3, verses 1 through 6, he healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath day. In Luke, chapter 13, he healed the crippled woman. In John, chapter 5, he healed the paralyzed man. He did stuff. He just didn't sit at home. He went out and he did things that were acceptable to that day. Works of necessity, works of mercy for that day. And he specifically teaches the disciples in Matthew 24, 20, when he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, he says to them, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Now think about this for a second. If Jesus came to destroy the law and to do away with the law and to just give us grace, he would have never told the disciples this. Because what he is saying here is he is saying 30 years from now, after I've already died, after I've already been raised again, after I already go into heaven and I am presently interceding at the right hand of the Father, 30 years from now, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath doesn't stop. The Sabbath day continues. The Sabbath day continues for us. Jesus believes that the Sabbath day is binding, that it continues forever. And I don't think that Matthew 24, 20 could possibly even be any more clear. For us, even after Jesus, even after all of his work, we still have the Sabbath day. But we call it the Christian Sabbath. It's a particular day that's chosen by God. Not a day that we get to choose. Nobody gets to stand up and say, I think I'll make Wednesday my Sabbath day. We don't get to do that. Psalm 118 says, this is the day that the Lord has made. The Lord made it. God gets to choose it. Jesus says in Matthew 24 that the Sabbath day is the day that you don't want your flight to be on. That is the day that God chose, not that we get to choose. And the Holy Spirit demonstrates its change from the day that the Jews were celebrating it as a result of coming out of Egypt to the next day which is the resurrection of Jesus, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. Isaiah 65, in verses 17 and 18, says that the old way of remembering should not be remembered anymore. And in Deuteronomy 5, in verse 15, for the Jews, it was the remembrance of the deliverance of Egypt. Isaiah says you don't remember it that way anymore. 
Jeremiah 16 says, they shall no more say, remembering it this way. We're going to remember it in a new way. We're going to remember it in a refreshed way, in a greater way, in the day that the Lord has made, which is in Jesus. And the stamp of approval on all that Christ had done in his life and in his death was in the resurrection. That was the day that the Lord has made. And the New Testament witnesses to that change, witnesses to the very same language that Isaiah uses, the Lord's day, speaking of the Sabbath, but for the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Matthew 28 and verse 1, Mark 16, Luke 24, John chapter 20, all of them talk about the resurrection on the first day of the week. That's today. That's the Lord's day. Jesus, after his resurrection, visits them when? On the first day of the week. John 20 and verse 19. Pentecost was done in Acts chapter 2 on what day? The first day of the week. Acts chapter 20, when Paul stays over in Ephesus and he's preaching, he doesn't leave, but waits to the next day to leave, because the day that he's there preaching is the Lord's day. In 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, the collection for the saints, for all the churches in Galatia, is taken, guess, on the first day of the week, when they come together to worship. Collecting the money, having a tithe, having an offering, that was an act of worship. Philippians 4.18 says it's an act of worship we do. In Revelation 1.10, John was on the island of Patmos. And this was 35 years after Jesus had, uh, was resurrected from the dead. And what, he was in the spirit on what time? What day? On the Lord's day. Revelation 1.10. The Lord's day is not a normal day. The Lord's day is God's day. It's God's day for us. We have the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11. That isn't like a spaghetti meal, is it? The Lord's Supper is a special supper that we commemorate the death of Christ. The meal is different. Nehemiah says that Jerusalem is the Lord's city. It's a different city than just all the other cities. Special. First Kings 8 said that the temple was the Lord's temple. John was exiled on Patmos and he was still keeping the Lord's day. Now, with saying all of that, I think that the clincher for us to understand Genesis chapter 2 and how it relates to us now is set in the context of the final passage I want us to look at, which is Hebrews 4. It'll bring it all together for us. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Everything that I've said in echoing what God did in that pattern for the Lord's Day is stated here as to why we, as Christians, keep this particular day and what it means to us. Hebrews chapter 4, let's just read through verse 1 through 10. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. 
For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he had spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest, or Sabbath. Since, therefore, it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has also himself ceased from his works, as God did from his. The people of God then have a rest. Now here is how, I'll give you the summary. Hebrews says this. Look, in the Old Testament, God worked six days and he rested. And that was supposed to be a sign for the Israelites. They were supposed to enter into the rest of God, but they didn't. They were disobedient. And as a result of being disobedient, if you remember the narrative... They didn't get to go into the promised land, right? And they all, everybody who was 20 years old and older died in the wilderness. There was judgment on them. And then the writer of Hebrews brings up, says, now Joshua had done it. If they had gone in and they had conquered all the land like they were supposed to, God would have brought the ultimate consummation on the planet and renewed everything and we would have entered his rest at that time, but they blew it there too. No. See, it wasn't until Jesus came until Jesus came, that's the he, Jesus comes and he enters his rest so that we, the people of God, have a rest. And he parallels it here. He says, just like God, who ceased his works after creating everything, rested on that day, so Jesus, when he finishes all of his works, goes and he rests. That's his resurrection. He ceased from all of his works. He finished. The stamp of approval is placed on it. And you don't see it in the English, but you do see it in the Greek, where he says, rest, rest, rest. And he uses this, I'm just going to say the K word. It's a word that begins with a K. He, he uses the K word, rest, rest, rest. And then when he says, we have a rest, he uses the S word. The S word is the Sabbath. So now, when we come together on the Lord's Day in this way, we reflect what Jesus has done in entering into his ultimate rest in which we still hope for. We are still hoping for the day when Christ will return and we will enter into the ultimate rest for all eternity. But now, we work six days and we rest. This day, that doesn't mean we go to sleep all day. It doesn't mean we sit on the couch all day. It means that we put down our work and we pick up God's work, just like Jesus did. That is our Sabbath day. God's rest in Genesis 2 is compared to Christ's rest. The whole church, all the duties, worship, and privileges of it are founded on the person and authority and actions of Jesus. And that is what Hebrews 4 
teaches us concerning the parallel between our main text of Genesis 2 and what Jesus has fulfilled for us. James tells us that if we don't keep the law, if we break just one point, we're guilty of breaking it all. Every time we don't keep the Sabbath, we break the whole law. That doesn't help us in terms of our justification, but it certainly helps us in terms of our sanctification. Or it hurts us in that way. The Christian Sabbath for us is a blessing. That's why Isaiah says, delight in it. Because we're delighting in God. So to end this, I want to simply touch on why the Christian Sabbath is so wonderful for us and what are a couple of things that we do that demonstrate our keeping of that day or help in keeping of that day. Now, we, we should remember it's a pattern of rest. This is what Genesis 2 teaches us. So, in thinking of it, resting is to put down your daily work and to pick up the work of rejoicing in God and in Jesus Christ. So, things that aid you in rejoicing in Him are the things that we should be concentrating on. The command in Exodus 20 tells us to remember. We don't remember simply creation, but we remember what Jesus did in his resurrection, his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, everything in him is our ultimate rest. So we have to reflect some of that now. We have to remember that Nehemiah rebuked the people of God for buying and selling on the Lord's day. We should take this day and not do those things to profane the day, and rather take this day to glorify God in it. In everything. Isaiah, as we read, says that we shouldn't do our own delight on this day. All the things that we would regularly delight in. What do you delight in? What do you like? What do you like to do? Take all of those things and put them aside. And on the Lord's day, the Lord says, let us delight in God. And obviously, it's a day for worship. Corporate worship seen all through the New Testament. The people of God came together. So, in this day, we can do works of necessity. Things like preparing for church, going to it, coming from it, all of those things are works that we have to do. We have to get in our car, we have to drive down the street, we have to go to those places. But, also, things that, that would be necessity to the good of our family. If we have animals, we should feed them. If we have children, we should have to feed them too. That doesn't just stop... The Sabbath day isn't just an excuse to stop doing things that you have to do above necessity. Those things you have to do. But the Super Bowl is not a holy use of the Lord's day. That's a profanation of the day. That those are the things that God tells us not to do on that day. But not only are we to do works of necessity in that way, things that we should do no matter what and are just part of normal life that we have to accomplish... But we should also do things that are works of mercy. And we ask this question. What is necessary to the good of the brethren and to loving enemies? You know, we, we could visit the sick or the poor or help people on this day or administer some kind of relief or comfort. Remember, Jesus went into the synagogue and he did think the Pharisees didn't like it. The Pharisees didn't like that he was healing people on the Sabbath, which is an amazing demonstration of their depravity. He went and healed these people. 
He went and he ministered to them. That is what we do on that day. So we have to ask the question, what works of mercy can we set aside to do on that day as well? There's probably lots of things that we could come up with. And then, no doubt, things that have to do with godliness, piety, the Christian religion. You know, God sanctified the day for us. So we should set it apart. We should separate it from other days. And we should abstain from the common stuff that we regularly do in our ordinary calling and vocations, and we should do things that God desires us to do. We could be pretty productive. Ezekiel Hopkins said it this way, the sanctification of the Sabbath day, the Christian Sabbath, consists in a diligent and conscientious attendance on all the things of God and the duties of his worship, appointed to be performed on that day, whether in public or private. So, prayer hearing the word, singing, the sacraments, family devotions, all of those things are helpful to aid in that day. We are to address ourselves on that day specifically to God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.35, without distraction, which really puts together what the Sabbath is about. To set our minds and our hearts on God. But every time we worship in this day, every time we come together in this day, every time we honor this day, we are reflecting our hope. It's an eschatological hope, a hope of the last day. We wish, now, want, hope, desire Jesus to return because we want to enter into the eternity of rest. That's what we're going to be doing when we go to heaven. Does that mean we're all just going to have beds in heaven and we're going to sleep and that's it? That's not the kind of rest. Remember, we're going to be ministering before God. We're going to put down all of this earthly travail. We're going to put down all the difficulties. We're going to put down all the pain, all the suffering, all the affliction, all the hardness of the curse. And we're going to pick up God's work forever. But each time we do that on the Lord's Day, each time we do that on the Christian Sabbath, each time we do that this day, we reflect and are more sanctified our desires for that time. We should be living now as we are going to live then. It's the very basics of what Jesus told us concerning the very way that we should be praying. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So even as the saints are now enjoying their rest, though it's not fully completed, though everything hasn't been renewed yet, they are enjoying the rest that they have in Christ in heaven. We now reflect that and we should live now as though we're in heaven already. That's why God gave us this day. He gave us a day so that we don't mix that which is common with that which is holy. And take a day in which we can be renewed and excited and we can delight ourselves in the Lord God. Worship is not just an outward act that we come and we sing and we do things. Worship comes from the heart. So we must delight ourselves in Him and enjoy this day. So when we read Genesis 2, our minds should immediately connect it with the work that Jesus did in his eternal rest and the short rests, these little blips that we have on these Lord's days 
until we finally go to heaven with him. May we be blessed in thinking about these things on this day, the Lord's Day. Let's pray together. Mighty God and everlasting Father, we thank you that you are our God. We thank you that you are the risen Savior, that you are now at the right hand of God the Father, that you are now ministering to us, that you are sending your Holy Spirit to us, that you are strengthening our heart, strengthening our minds, strengthening our wills by the power of the Spirit, that we might be more conformed to your image. And what a wonderful thing it is, O Lord, that you give us a taste now, just as Hebrews 4 has said, a Sabbath now, that we are able to reflect your glory and the wonderful power of your resurrection for all the work that you have done, that we might think about the eternal rest that we so hope would come quickly. Lord, we even pray now, let it come today. Return today and let this earthly travail be done. We would so desire to come to heaven, Lord, to gaze upon your beauty and to seek you in your temple all the days of our life, that we would have the eternal rest there. But as we are so bound here on earth, Lord, if it is your will to tarry, help us to glorify you in the commandment of keeping this Lord's Day, this Sabbath, this rest, to reflect the hope that we have. We so pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. 
It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.